Welcome to the National Film Pod of Canada, the podcast with a different take on the movies. My name is George Kaplan. In this episode, I continue to discuss the early history of Canadian film based on the book by Peter Morse. We will go on to Chapter 4 and then 5. Chapter 4, 10% Ernie Another movie huckster at the beginning of the 20th century was Ernest Shipman. But he was different from the other film promoters, in that he didn't run away with the money that he got from Canadian investors. He produced seven features in three years, no small accomplishment in Canada. His approach to film was Canadian, in the sense that he said, that films should be produced directly in a location with which they dealt. Telling the truth in motion pictures, as Shipman called it. This, as the author states, was a big deal in Canadian motion pictures for the simple reason that Canada was being misrepresented by Hollywood films constantly. He was a gifted promoter for his films and for himself. He was also a bit of a visionary, a rare thing in Canadian movies. He had high hopes for the future of Canadian film. He promised the construction of permanent production centers spread across the country and regionally based. He said that Canada had almost limitless potential as a major film-producing nation. He spoke many times of repatriating permanently the many Canadians working in movies in Hollywood. In his movies, he said, preference will be given to Canadian authors, Canadian players and the necessary technical staff will be recruited from Canada. He also said that Canada should have a film school. And he said, as if that wasn't enough, that, quote, a Canadian picture will not necessarily mean that we are to have snow scenes. In fact, we intend to eliminate the snow scenes and picture Canada during her summer and autumn months, unquote probably the most Canadian thing that could be said at the time. His way of making movies in Canada never varied. His formula was to find a Canadian story, raise money for its production as a film in the locale in which it was set, excite community participation in the production, and promote in-kind assistance in the form of locations, facilities, and personnel. He seemed to have been liked, if not exactly trusted, by most of his contemporaries. His son, Barry Shipman, recalls that his father was not much of a businessman. His real talent was in promoting schemes that remained just on the right side of the law. Out of these schemes, he took his cut, hence the name 10% Ernie. Shipman was born in Hall, Quebec, and studied at Ryerson in Toronto, Ontario. He becomes interested in promotion and publicity, what we would now call marketing. At 26, he was running a company called Canadian Entertainment Bureau, 
and soon after was running an amusement company with offices on Broadway in New York City. He stage managed successful shows, and he was married several times, but the one marriage that stands out was the one to Nell Shipman, an actress born in Canada who helped him a lot in his career. And since she was integral to his success, I'll say a few words about her, even though this is about Ernest Shipman. And Nell's real name was Helen Barnham, and she was born in Victoria, B.C. in 1892. She had already been in show business four years, touring Canada and the U.S. as an actress and a vaudeville performer. Ernest Shipman was the manager of a theatrical stock company when she came to him for a job. He gave her a lead role in an upcoming tour of a play called The Barrier. When the two met, she was 18 and Ernest was 39. He worked hard for her career and cared for her, and then married her in 1911. The two decided to move to California in 1912. It needs to be remembered here that at this time, Ernest Shipman was a theatrical manager and promoter. He didn't have anything to do with movies, yet. But it became obvious while in California, and seeing film companies springing up all over the place, that the old vaudeville days were slowly fading away and the movies was the new thing. He convinced a retired army officer to back his first film, called A Ball of Yarn, in 1912. It was written by and starred Nell Shipman, and was so bad it was never shown publicly. Meanwhile, Nell was writing and selling scripts and began to make a name for herself. In 1914, she directed for Universal Studios her first three films. Each film was three reels long, which is about 30 minutes. And she played the lead in all of them. In 1915, she played the lead role in a film called God's Country and a Woman based on a James Oliver Kerwood story. It was the first of the wildlife adventure films, and it enjoyed great success and made a star of Nell Shipman. The God's Country tag was to follow her throughout her life, and she used it to her advantage, as we will see later on. Ernest used his contacts and Universal Pictures to help Nell's career, but he was by no means neglecting his own. He hovered on the fringes of film production for years, establishing himself first as a publicist and agent of some repute, but slowly edging himself into film production. It was in these early teens that Shippen came up with various film schemes that were imaginative, like a floating movie studio, which was a boat equipped as a studio and was supposed to sail around the world and make films. But of course, that didn't happen. Shippen never lost the sight of the idea that he had years ago of buying the rights to the works of prominent novelists and filming them on location, which seems like an obvious idea to us now, but back then it wasn't so obvious. In 1918, he got his first big chance because of the success of his wife's role in Goth Country and a Woman. He proposed to the author, James Oliver Kerwood, to sign a, contra a contract under which Kerwood agreed to give exclusive film rights to his stories and to Vanille Shipman, he proposed to the author James Oliver Kerwood to sign a contract under which Kerwood agreed to give exclusive film rights to his stories to Nell Shipman 
for two years while she agreed to star exclusively in films based on his stories. And who was Kerwood? At the time, Kerwood was the best-selling author. Most of his stories were outdoor adventures, and though he was an American, his stories took place in northern Canada. These were the stories that are mainly responsible for the popular image of Canada as a land of endless ice and snow. The first Kerwood story selected for filming was called Wappy the Walrus. It had the usual elements of a Kerwood story, melodramatic triangle of heroine, hero, and villain, a setting in the wilds of northern Canada, a dog as a co-hero, bears, elks, etc. And of course, the Northwest Mounted Police. Shipman went to Calgary for funding, for some reason. He found some investors there who were lured by the prospect of making some profits, but also of making Calgary a rival of Hollywood. Here we can probably see the influence of Shipman's selling abilities. The film's title was renamed Back to God's Country to take advantage of the success of Nell and her film God's Country and a Woman. The crew arrived in Calgary. Uh, the director, David M. Hartford, was a Hollywood director of action films. The production was done in May. The movie was released in September 1919 to almost universal acclaim. The film tells the story of Dolores Lebeau, who lives in the Canadian woods with her father and who has a rapport with the wild animals of the forest. She falls in love with Peter, a Canadian government official, and marries him after escaping from Rydal. The villain, who disguised as a Mountie, tries to rape her and then kills her father. There's more story to that, but you, you get the point that this is a typical 19th century melodrama. But despite the melodrama in both plot and secondary characters, the movie has qualities that seem almost modern. The emphasis on living in sensitive accord with nature and the presence of Nell Shipman, a heroine who, for once, is not a victim but an active protagonist. Nell Shipman, a writer in her own right, had made changes to the Kerwood story. Uh, to see the difference, we need to compare other films based on a Kerwood story, like a film called Nomads of the North, which is a typical Mountie film, incorporating several of the genre's defining characteristics, a brave, honorable Mountie force to choose between duty and love, and the Canadian North as a landscape background, and the inevitable French-Canadian villain. In contrast, Back to God's Country implies that accepted authority figures may not have a right to that authority. It also stresses the role of the woman as the protagonist, with the will and determination to control her own destiny, and presents nature not as a backdrop, but as essential associate in the action. Based on the fact that the movie was a great success, we can see that Nell Shipman's approach to the story was better. Promotion of the film was in Ernest Shipman's hands, of course. The promotion campaign for the film was as extensive as one might have expected for a film costing ten times that of Back to God's Country. Shipman's talents ensured that the film was made and that it was also marketed, a thing lacking in Canada before his arrival on the scene. The movie was a big success, grossing $500,000 in its first year, 
netting the Calgary's investors in the movie a 300% return. On the strengths of the success, he traveled across Canada for the next four years, trying to repeat it. The company that had made the movie was supposed to produce another one, but never did. It's not certain why. It's possible that Kerwood didn't like the changes made by Nell to his story. A little while after the completion of the movie, Nell and Ernest divorced. But for whatever reason, Canadian Photoplays, the company that had produced Canada's most financially successful film, went into voluntary liquidation. Ernest Shipman didn't seem to care about that since he had found another author's stories to film. Ralph Connor, then Canada's most widely read and famous author. His method of making films was pretty much the same. He traveled across regions in Canada, met up with local business people and officials to raise funds, created a film company for each film scheduled to be shot, sometimes used local actors, but the technicians were usually Americans or Canadians who had emigrated to Hollywood years ago. Here, Peter Morris says, quote, Shipman knew exactly how to stimulate local interest and ease money from potential investors. And it is interesting to note that Shipman assiduously avoided the two major Canadian metropolitan centers of Toronto and Montreal. Both had ongoing film production, and both had seen the rise and fall of more than a few feature film companies. Investors there might have been skeptical of Shipman's projects. It's worth noting that Shipman had established himself in a position to make money at each stage of a film's production. He always took care of himself in these deals. The constant use of real location wasn't just to make sure we saw the actual Canadian landscapes, but also a way of saving money, since shooting in a studio was always expensive and Shipman didn't have a studio. So what else was he going to use? Starting in 1922, Shippen had a hand in four movies. Two were based on stories written by Ralph Connor, the uh, man from Glengarry, and another one called Glengarry School Days, a story called Blue Water, written by Frederick William Wallace, and an adaptation of a novel called The Rapids, written by Alan Sullivan. As an example of Shippen's regional approach to filmmaking, both Glengarry films were shot in Ottawa, Ontario. The Rapids was shot in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. And Blue Water was shot in St. John, New Brunswick. Uh, these movies had investors, of course, but it's not too clear if they made any money, but Shipman did. Some of these movies were warmly received by critics and the public, except for Blue Water, which was a total failure. Uh, their uh, investors did lose all their money, and the movie never had a major release. The failure of Blue Water ended Shipman's career as a Canadian film producer. His subsequent career is a mystery. At one time, he was the representative of a prize fighter. Then he was in England, attempting to promote an actress protege of his. This failed. Then he was a journalist. And finally, he died in New York in 1931. And what really happened here? Why wasn't Shipman able to make more films? He was, after all, very successful with his first movie, No Small Accomplishment in Canada. 
And what happened was that shipment was caught in a squeeze play, which was forcing independent producers and distributors out of the film business. And by the early 20s, three companies were already beginning to dominate the industry. Paramount, First National, and Fox. Independent producers found it increasingly difficult to sell their films to these three. Only 75% of the films produced at this time were shown, and because of this, competition was intense. In 1919, when Shipman began film producing, the film business in the U.S. and Canada was still open to the independent filmmakers. By 1922, the quote-unquote vertical integration of production, distribution, and exhibition in the U.S. was beginning, which is to say that the Hollywood monopoly of the film industry in the U.S. and Canada began around this time. Eventually, this monopoly took down all the independent filmmakers, both Canadian and American. Shipman's fate corresponded with the end of a minor boom in Canadian film production that had begun during the First World War. Chapter 5. The State and Movies Direct government involvement in Canadian film production began in World War I. The American Bureau of Commercial Economics asked the Government of Canada for films on resources and economic development in Canada. The Canadian government asked the Canadian Pacific Railroad for ideas on this. And the CPR said that since there are no moving picture firms in Canada, actually there were, so they recommended the company called SNA Film Manufacturing Company of Chicago to do this job. Four American cameramen were sent to Canada to film our grain industries and our water resources. And since these resources came under the water branch of the Department of the Interior, a guy called Ben Norrish was put in charge because he was scientifically qualified and actually had an interest in films. He was the chief draftsman with the branch. And from the SNA footage shot by the Americans, a series of educational films were produced for theatrical and non-theatrical release. Even though 90% of this project was done by government officials, the SNA company had been paid very well, plus they earned money from distributing these films in the U.S. So the Canadian government officials asked themselves the obvious question, couldn't films be produced more efficiently and cheaply by an in-house government film unit, and couldn't they earn some money from theatrical distribution? So the Canadian government in 1918 created the world's first government film production unit in Ottawa, Ontario. The Bureau grew rapidly from a staff of four in September 1918 to a staff of 14, including three cameramen by November 1919. By November 1919, the Bureau could also boast of the largest and best equipped studio and laboratory in Canada. This uh, Motion Picture Bureau created multiple series of films for theaters and non-theatrical distribution in the U.S., Australia, New Zealand, and South America, and even Japan. 
One of this series they produced was called Seeing Canada, designed by Ben Norrish in February 1919. A new film in this series was released every two weeks, and the movies in the series had titles like Harvest of Maple Sugar Threes, etc. Typical of uh, running a government department, even a film one, was the bureaucracy and having to deal with political interference. So because of that, Norrish resigned after only two years in the bureau. But there was another uh, actually government bureau, and it was in Ontario. Uh, the difference between these two bureaus was that the Ontario one outsourced its production to private companies. But to make a long story short, because of perceived overcharges by the private firms that they hired, and the fact that the Ontario government bureau's films were not having the impact that they should have had, the Ontario government decided to produce its own film, and so it bought a movie studio in Trenton, Ontario, for that purpose. And most other provinces in Canada uh, uh, had also made their own movies, at least the provincial governments in those provinces had made movies, but they used private companies. The use of film as an education tool grew rapidly in the 20s. Quebec was the first to show films in school. By 1925, the Ontario Bureau had 2,000 films in its library. In the Ontario Bureau, the first two years were great, but after a while the management became conservative and cautious and made some bad decisions, notably using a 28mm film format for its cameras and lab equipment. This equipment eventually became obsolete as 16mm became the standard for film. Eventually, by 1934, the Ontario Bureau was dissolved and the studio in Trenton was donated to the city. Meanwhile, the Federal Motion Picture Bureau was doing well. Uh, someone called Ray Peck took over from Ben Norrish in 1920. He was born in 1886. He began as a journalist before becoming a salesman in the U.S. He returned to Canada in 1917 as a publicity manager for Universal Pictures. He edited Universal's house journal Motion Picture Bulletin, which eventually turned into the Canadian Moving Picture Digest, Canada's first movie trade paper. Eventually, he was hired as an editor by the Bureau in Ottawa. Peck's hiring illustrated the struggles the Bureau had in dealing with the civil service ignorance, ignorance of uh, motion pictures. Peck was hired as an editor, a term the civil service understood since it was used in publishing, though it is clear from the description of his functions that he was a film director. The financial returns from rentals of their movies were up in the 20s. These films were seen in the U.S., and by 1927, the Bureau had a thousand print circulating in theaters. And where were these films like? Quote, The Bureau's films of this period have a style, a structure and choice of subject matter that was to become characteristic. They are well photographed, if a little static, and tend to concentrate on interesting scenery to the frequent exclusion of urban scenes and people. The editing is ponderous. Interspersed between shots are explanatory art titles, often cutely humorous, 
designed to increase audience interest. Even the titles of the films themselves often have something of the same quality, like Where the Moose Runs Loose, Coining Money, Where Snow Time is Joy Time, etc. Often the Bureau's films were better in quality than similar Hollywood films, but the cinema moved on and the Bureau stayed behind. Style, approach, and titles that produced an enjoyable film like Where the Moose Runs Loose in 1920 was to be hopelessly outdated by 1928 when the Bureau produced a film like Falling Waters. Characteristic of the Bureau at its worst, this film consists of a series of static shots of dozens of waterfalls across Canada interspersed with ponderously poetic titles. Unquote. The reason for the dominance of these types of films, tourist films really, is that, uh, quote, Americans were not interested in seeing Canadians making cars or making paper. They were interested in seeing Canada as an endless fish and game reserve with stunning scenery coast to coast peopled by friendly guides and interesting natives, unquote. And these tourist films were most in demand from the U.S. Peck was an early exponent of the idea that foreign, American here, companies should shoot dramatic features in Canada, and Peck believed that it was part of the Bureau's role to encourage such arrangements. And Hollywood answered the call, because lots of movies studios sent second units to photograph various Canadian locations and animals such as buffalo herds and in Stampede, but not too many were sent to film dramas. With Peck, we see the very, very early attitude that the government had towards the film industry. It made more sense for Hollywood to make movies than for Canadians. It was an attitude first heard from Louis Selznick, but then from Canadians themselves. So rather than be insulted, Canadians agreed with it. And this attitude started in the 20s, as we see here and goes on to this day. Peck reflected at a very early stage in movies, a Canadian attitude towards Hollywood that I would call servile. And this is my opinion, not the uh, author Peter Morris. An example of this is what happened during the crisis of the British border system. And the word crisis here is used for Americans, not for the British or the Canadians. I'll go into more details later on, but, but briefly, the quota is what it sounds. It's a quota system implemented by the British government for their movie theaters, where a certain percentage of British movies, or the British Commonwealth movies, were to be shown in British theaters alongside Hollywood films. And obviously, the Americans didn't like that. So Peck, uh, being the Hollywood enabler that he was, went to Hollywood and consulted there with the producers on how to circumvent the intent of the British quota. So later on in the 30s, Hollywood branch plants, very early branch plants, actually sprung up in Canada to make Hollywood movies that would qualify as British because they were made in Canada and so could be shown in Britain. And that obviously benefited Canada in the short term, but screwed the British, and in the long term, didn't help Canada either because those quota quickies, as they were called, were so 
awful mo- such awful movies that they didn't have the Canadian reputation for filmmaking. So probably as a result of his help, Peck got some generous contracts for the American distribution of the Bureau's productions. Peck died in 1927 and was replaced by Frank Badgley, a journalist and a former actor born in Ottawa, Ontario. An interesting note here is that Badgley had a role in American filmmaker D.W. Griffith's movie, Way Down East, and been an assistant director for Metro Pictures, one of the early uh, American film studio. Badgley's turn was not easy, and he proved to be the last director of the Bureau. The Bureau's output didn't keep up with the times. Along with the Depression, lack of money, and a federal government which didn't really care about the Bureau, the end came when the National Film Board of Canada was created in 1941 and absorbed the Bureau. The epitaph of the Bureau was written by John Grierson, the founder of the NFB, who said, quote, If life in the Dominion, he means Canada, is as these films represent, we might expect Canadians to engage only in fishing, golf, and the observation of wild animals. There are practically no industries, very little work, and no working people. Unquote. For the Bureau, at least, Canada was a vast playground for tourists, full of rich and natural resources ready for exploitation, and the Depression apparently never happened. After a decade of such films, the end of the Bureau was inevitable. And that's the end of this episode, and next time we will continue with the review of the early history of Canadian film. I forgot to mention in the Chapter 4 segment that if you are interested in seeing the movie discussed there, the movie called Back to God's Country, you can actually see it on, well, where else? YouTube. There's a channel there called the Silent Film Channel, and if you look up the movie title, you'll be able to view it, so check it out. If you have any comments about this podcast, you can reach the NFP at nfpcan at protonmail.com. That's nfpcan at protonmail.com. Bye for now. <laughs>